remember yeah. just having an amazing routine in those days mm-hmm. which i mean it didn't mean that i was necessarily very productive during the day but i had this was this like one of those like a famous writer routines where you wake up take a bath drink some whiskey bath and whiskey in the morning i should try that for my next big project yeah, isn't this hemingway's uh ernest hemingway's writing routine oh it's a hemingway okay All right maybe that's why it wasn't such a brilliant thesis this is minor revision the podcast about science and academia and the people who work in it. In the second episode, I interviewed my co-host Jeroen to get him to talk in some more detail about his reasons for leaving academia. Before I started the recording, we had a brief conversation about the difficulties of quitting a PhD when you realize it's not for you. This prompted the following question. Do you think you would have quit your PhD if it was easier? I think I think I may have. Yeah. Which is not, you know, I'm not saying that that would have been better for me, but I definitely after a year and a half or so I was I was having major doubts about the whole enterprise. Uh and then I started spending more time actually even earlier than that. I started spending more time on stuff that made me feel motivated like outreach, science communication, you know, doing talks, lectures, writing, popular science stuff. And that made me feel like, hey, this is something that I really enjoy. And that gave me the motivation to then go back to the university and study things that I could write about. It's really hard to be self-driven if you don't have something real in the real world to to refer to, to be like, this is the behavior I want to understand. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by being self-driven in that context? Uh, having having an intrinsic motivation for why to study something. Like, it's one thing to say, I'm interested in social decision-making, so I'm going to take some tasks that people have been working on and try to push the envelope on those. It's another thing to say, you know, I am an engineer and I have this problem in my machine that doesn't work, and so I'm going to set up a study to test out different solutions for this idea. Or I'm a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and I have patients for whom, you know, the existing cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't seem to work because there's this one thing that's in the way. How can we better understand that thing? There are different ways to reach a research question. And my sense is that, it, for me at least, it would be more valuable to, to start with a real-world example or application. I get the sense that oftentimes, a lot of time is spent on thinking about you know what the trends are in the field and you know what kind of projects could do well in the literature and not as much about like you know what's what's the thing you're trying to understand what do you know about it what's needed to take a step forward you know maybe i'm i'm interested in principle in you know like social interaction studying social interaction but then when you try to make that concrete to do a study, it's so easy to be driven by like, you know, what are topics that are currently being researched a lot. And and there's also some value to that, like in, in behavioral economics, for example, or, you know, social decision making. There are these games, these economic games like Prisoner's Dilemma and Trust Games and, and Dictator Games. And they're studied a lot by, you know, many different people from economics, biology, psychology. And in a way, that's a good thing because that gives us a lot of information in a, in a way that's 
at least controlled in part for the paradigm we use. Way back in the 80s, you know, they were doing experiments with Prisoner's Dilemma games, for example. Those were grounded in examples from theoretical biology, where it made sense to just pick one really simple interaction as a simulation of interaction between animals. Do you have an example? A slightly different game, then, is uh, what they call the hog-dove game. Um, it's, it's this interaction where you know, the abstract description is that two animals meet, and they can either fight or they can run away. If both animals fight, they both incur damage. If one fights and the other runs away, then um, the one who fights gets the prize, gets you know, the, the piece of meat that's in the middle, and neither of them incur damage. If both run away, none of them get the prize. And neither of them get damage. Yeah, that's right. Except for maybe a little bit more hunger. Yeah, and so, you know, if you're in a population of only so-called doves who run away, it makes sense being a hawk, an aggressive individual, because then you're going to win most of the time. However, you know, once due to learning or due to evolution, the, the presence of hawks increases um, you know, suddenly it becomes more and more valuable to run away. But then as a, an individual graduate student, you learn about these tasks, you work on them for two years, and you're so lost in the details that only at the time when you're trying to write the paper are you thinking, okay, well, how does this reflect a real-world situation that we're trying to understand? Let's think about what a graduate student would do. A graduate student would take an example of a hog-dove situation where mm -hmm. people... For example, a human has to make a decision between two options, which is to approach or avoid something. Yeah. And the approach has a certain potential cost associated, but mm -hmm. also a potential reward. And avoiding has no reward, but also no cost yeah. associated with it. Yeah. And then you might collect data on a number of human participants who do this task. And, you know, people show different kinds of behavior. And you might correlate the extent to which they engage in one strategy over another with the level of testosterone in their blood. Yeah, or something. exactly. Or the activity in the amygdala. Even after having worked in this field for so long, it's so difficult to, to really describe what the value of it is, right? <laughs> and sure, part of the value is that it's fun and interesting. And But at some point, yeah, to me, that, that wasn't enough anymore. Or the question becomes, well, how, what can we do with this? Or... Yeah, what's the point? Because you don't actually know if these humans who are very hog-like or very dove-like are any particular way in real life. Yeah, exactly. Either. So what you're pointing out, I think, is the generalizability, right? Of yeah. If somebody does A in the lab, are they going to do A when they leave the lab? And there's actually a lot of evidence that those links are not so strong. So if somebody, say, is helpful in the lab... And then the person leaves the lab and there's a confederate of the experimenter outside the building, the psychology building, who drops, you know, their pens on the floor. It's actually not a given that the person who was helpful in the experiment in the lab will also be helpful outside of the building and, you know, pick up these pens for the confederate. That's, so, this is great. This is a real study, I imagine. Yeah, this is a real study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done by some economists, uh, you know, in interestingly and painfully. <laughs> so that's the generalizability issue. But then on top of that, there's also the issue of like, 
even if it generalized, what does it teach us about how things work that you can show that some people are helpful and others are not? It's, yeah. You said you had major doubts about the whole enterprise a year and a half into your PhD. Did that translate to an inability to do work on a daily basis? I think it may be lazier than I should have been in hindsight. I mean, definitely if you compare it to like how much you want to get done during your PhD in order to get a job later on, right? I didn't have anything published of my PhD at the end of the four years, uh, which... I think it's not a very good score. Because you said you, you w went looking for other things that did motivate you. So you went and did public outreach and mm -hmm. science communication, or I know that you've written a book. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was during your PhD. It was right before I went to give talks and stuff on, on the book during the PhD. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound lazy at all to me. <laughs> the laziness thing this you did yourself you based it on whether you had published or not at the end of your phd yeah. and i feel like maybe that in itself is also an assumption that should not be there oh yeah for sure i i've definitely internalized some some toxic norms there i myself have published during my phd and that is not at all to brag but that is mostly because i had an amazing supervisor who had started collecting data for a huge project when I arrived mm -hmm. and it was my job to analyze the data and write it up and that is a completely different kind of experience of of doing research mm -hmm. than coming there and maybe conceptualizing something and thinking about how to measure it and setting up an experimental paradigm and yeah. piloting the paradigm and then tweaking the paradigm and collecting data again learning how to analyze it never publish anything and still have done way more than I have. Well, thanks. <laughs> I mean, that makes me feel a little better in hindsight. I, I think you're probably right in some ways. I, you know, it's the number of publications definitely do, is not an index of how hard somebody works, at least an unreliable one. There are so many other factors that play into it. Um, yeah. I applied for a PG theme I thought it was interesting. I emailed the professor. He was recruiting at the time, so I wrote a letter and, and had interviews, and then I got the job. I think I never reached the point where I had my own questions formulated and then tried to get money to actually figure them out. I experienced that more for my postdoc, actually. I went into it with like a really clear question about political polarization and how to measure it, how to measure a given aspect of it mm -hmm. in the brain. Um, and then I got to carry that out. And then at the, at the end of that process, I still feel as if, you know, we've, we've done some interesting neuroscientific measurements of the problem and maybe we've gained some theoretical insight, but it's not like we can reduce polarization in society with that. No. And so I think what I actually in the end care about is not the neuroscience understanding of it, but rather the behavior itself and perhaps trying to contribute to you know, improving the situation a little bit. So uh, to me, motivation has been like a red thread, you know, that has 
brought me places and has given me doubts and now eventually has caused me to do something else. The moments when you choose your next step in your academic career tend to coincide with moments where you have some success. For instance, when you decide to do a postdoc, that's at the end of your PhD. Then that's when the results are coming in. That's when you're finally seeing some reward, right? So perhaps the feeling, like how you feel continuously over four or five years of PhD isn't always, doesn't always feed into your decision to do two, three, four years of postdoc. Um, so that's, I think, a kind of an interesting aspect of the system that might bias our decisions more than we care to think about. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely an interesting thought. Thank you. At the same time, I remember that at the end of my PhD, I was so done. Oh, yeah. I also think it might be it might be more of a personal thing, perhaps, because I I enjoy writing. And the last phase of my PhD was a lot of writing. And I really felt like things were coming together. And I finally started seeing the bigger picture a bit more. And you enjoyed writing your thesis. Yeah, I did. I mean, as much as possible, I think, because the the days of sitting at home on my own working on my thesis were pretty weird in some ways like being cooped up with your word processor but I also I also really loved it because I felt like it was just very interesting what I was writing about you know <laughs> which is a good feeling to have about your own PhD topic I think really that is quite personal because I, I think there are a lot of thesis writing processes that are a lot more painful than that yeah I yeah I think so so there's a second uh, moment or phase that was meaningful to me, um, which was not too long after this first one. Uh, it was in the beginning of my postdoc, the first semester, let's say, where I had moved to a different country, to the United States, um, to a town where I didn't really know anybody uh, to start this postdoc. I did it to, to try and see what it was like, and I, and I had a cool idea for research. So... I was pretty excited to go there. But then it was also quite tough in the beginning. And I think a lot of postdocs will recognize this, that especially if you move on your own, you know, you can feel pretty isolated in a new country, in a new town, a university. Yeah. And that coincides with working a lot because you're, you know, you want to be at your best for your postdoc and there's some PhD work that you're trying to finish. So that combination of working really hard and not having a lot of friends around, maybe that made me think out of necessity about my questions of motivation again. Like, is this what I want to be doing? Mm-hmm. That was in the beginning. I ended up finishing the PhD, and I'm really glad I did because, yeah, in, in the end, it was a really enriching experience. But I definitely also became more critical of like, okay, you know, if this is the same way in the next step, well, then I really must do something that I love. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's really not worth it for me. And is that kind of the realization that you had in the beginning when you were doing your postdoc? Or were you then also... Maybe I'm a bit more of a homebody than other people, but I've had this experience at multiple moments, like, you know, doing a research internship abroad during my master's. I had a similar feeling after a month. I was like, 
why am I here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then after a while you get used to it. But that that feeling for me triggered more critical thinking about what I was doing. So this is what I mentioned earlier, like making choices on autopilot because they're the default option. That is no longer possible if the circumstances force you to really think critically about where you want to be. So that's, I think, how I ended up making the decision to work on questions that I think are potentially impactful and meaningful. Do you have the feeling that your new job will solve all of your problems? <laughs> Uh, I think I think there's this interesting. Uh, it's probably an illusion if we're realistic that the new job will solve everything, uh, but I, I think it will definitely improve parts of it. I think it also allows me to bring my work in a better balance with the rest of my life. Yeah, because you will be you will be dealing with real life data that. Mm -hmm touches the lives of people who are affected by mental illness right yes exactly it's so concrete right we're going to be measuring uh the impact of covid lockdown on mental health this is actually an ongoing project that i'm going to be a part of in several neighborhoods at the neighborhood level right so uh, there's going to be many more data points than you would have in an experiment in the lab um and we're going to be studying interventions so we're going to be you know, trying several approaches to, uh, um, you know, to detect depression early on in adolescence, for instance, and then see which one works best. And so there's definitely a loss of experimental control. Uh, and there's perhaps a loss of like fundamental scientific insight, but there's a gain in impact and applicability, which I hope Given that I've had this doubt at multiple points in my career, I, I hope it'll be uh, rewarding. Yeah. I started yesterday. You started yesterday, right. Yesterday was the first of April. Yep. And then today is your first day off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because today is Good Friday. It is. How, uh, how was your first day, Jeroen? It was great. Yeah? I love that. I got so excited by all the projects. It's so, so fun. It's like, it's at the same time, really low level and concrete and social. And it's about people and individuals, you know, and, and how they're doing, which I love thinking about. <laughs> you love thinking about how everyone's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's pretty complex and like challenging and you know, there's really important questions about policy too and how have we organized mental health in the Netherlands? How do we spend our money? Do you have strong opinions about this? I can imagine you do. Uh, not not yet, not really. I mean, I don't know enough about it yet, I feel like, but it's a very interesting field and I think there's a lot to be improved. I mean, we, you know, we read about it in the newspaper every day that, you know, people with real problems can't get the help they need in time mm -hmm. and we need to do something about it, so... Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a fascinating field, and I, I'm excited to be part of it. I haven't had a month yet, so I think I'm still in the honeymoon phase. But 
yeah, I'm, I'm Day optimistic one. that it will last. You better be in the honeymoon phase. Yeah, 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 exactly. And again, I, I love like as an academia, I think the colleagues or the people you work with are are good so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say great, but I don't really know them, but you know, like everyone is super smart and interesting and yeah. they uh, yeah, they have really great ideas. So That was all for this episode of Minor Revision. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to this wherever you listen to podcasts. If you think it would be interesting to talk to us, you can send an email to minorrevisionpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter too. Our handle is at minor underscore revision. Next time, a story about science, hype, and roller coasters. Hope you tune back in.